Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Peter Lightheart on May 30th, Lord's Day Service. Grace you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Today in the traditional church calendar is Trinity Sunday. Uh, the readings for today were from the Trinity Sunday lectionary, but I'm going to do a throwback sermon to last week, which was Pentecost. You heard of a Pentecost sermon last week, I apologize, but of course, uh, it's, you can't get too much of the spirit. I'm reading from Acts chapter 2, the first 21 verses. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Holy Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear, him, hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who, are live in, all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the one anointed with the Spirit who has come to pour out the Spirit on us. We thank you that we receive the Spirit of Jesus and that by that Spirit you are conforming us to his image. We pray that we would be filled with the Spirit so we would carry out Jesus' mission 
and so fulfill your purpose for us. In Jesus' name, amen. In the life of Jesus and in the ministry of the early church, the Spirit is everywhere doing everything. Even before Jesus appears, the Spirit is already stirring in Judea, in Jerusalem, in Nazareth. The Spirit is going to come on John, Zechariah is told, and John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Zechariah, John's father, doesn't believe it at first, but when he finally agrees that this child should be called John, Zechariah, who has been made mute for a time, his, his tongue is loosed and he begins to speak and he's filled with the Spirit and he sings what we know as the Benedictus. Mary conceives a child by the Spirit. It's through the Spirit of God that the Son of God takes flesh and begins his earthly life. When Mary visits Elizabeth, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, and John, the unborn baby in Elizabeth's womb, leaps for joy at the presence of the Spirit-created, Spirit-anointed Mashiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One. When Jesus is taken to the temple for the purification after Mary's childbirth, after Mary has borne him, Simeon is there, and the Spirit is with him and the spirit has told him that he's not going to die until he sees the Lord's Christ and he sings the song we know as the Nunc Dimittis now let your servant depart in peace according to your word Jesus entire ministry is ministry by the power of the spirit his ministry begins when the spirit comes upon him at his baptism when the Father pronounces his approval of his Son and gives him the gift of the Spirit through the dove. And then Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to confront the devil. He is driven by the Spirit to Nazareth to preach his first sermon about the Spirit. He quotes from Isaiah, The one filled with the Spirit is coming. Behold, this prophecy is fulfilled today in your hearing. And everything that Jesus does throughout his entire ministry is done by the power of the Spirit. He preaches in the Spirit. He heals by the finger of the Spirit. He casts out demons by the power of the Spirit. He raises the dead by the life of the Spirit. Jesus does nothing except through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then at Pentecost, 40 days, 50 days after his resurrection, Jesus pours out that spirit, the spirit that has been with him, the spirit that has accompanied him everywhere, doing everything, the spirit that has equipped Jesus to do his deeds of power, his signs and wonders among the people, that spirit, that same spirit, imprinted now with the life and the power of Jesus, is poured out on the disciples so that they can be imprinted with the life and power of Jesus and they can continue the mission that Jesus began in the Spirit. They have the same Spirit so they can do the same mission. And here on Pentecost, on the first Pentecost, the Spirit gives them utterance so they preach 
the good news to people from every nation under heaven. And throughout Acts, the Spirit falls again and again and gives the disciples and then Samaritans and then Gentiles the capacity to speak in tongues, to speak in other languages, and to proclaim the good news and the great deeds of God in all the languages of the world. It's in the power of the Spirit that the disciples replicate the miracles of Jesus and surpass the miracles of Jesus. Peter's shadow, Peter's shadow heals people. Jesus never did that. But now Jesus, filled with resurrection power, pours out the spirit of resurrection power on his disciples, and now Peter can do things that not even Jesus did. Because the same spirit that was with Jesus, now equipped and filled with the power of resurrection, comes to the disciples. The apostles preach in the spirit. They heal in the spirit. They cast out demons in the spirit. They triumph over enemies in the spirit. They raise the dead in the spirit, just like Jesus did. Stephen. Stephen is so filled with the spirit that none of his opponents can best him. Like Jesus, he's in the temple courts and he's debating with various enemies of the church, but he overcomes them in every debate and every conflict, just as Jesus had done, because of the spirit that's in him. And then as Stephen dies, as he's cast out of the city and he's stoned to death, he dies filled with the spirit. And once Stephen dies, the spirit that's been operating in Jerusalem among the apostles gets unleashed out of Jerusalem and begins spreading. It spreads to Samaria. Philip takes the spirit to Samaria and the spirit falls on the Samaritans. And then the spirit takes Philip off to see an Ethiopian eunuch returning from Jerusalem from a feast. And he proclaims the gospel to that Ethiopian eunuch who is baptized and receives the spirit and takes the spirit down to Ethiopia. And then the Spirit whisks Philip away to a different place. The Spirit selects Saul. The Spirit fills Saul as he's becoming Paul. And the Spirit selects Saul and Silas, Paul and Silas, as missionaries to go to the Gentiles. And the Spirit does, doesn't just get them started. It's not that the Spirit just initiates that mission, but all along the way, all the, even, even down to the itinerary, is determined by the Spirit. Paul wants to go to Asia, but the Spirit keeps stopping him from going back to Asia, and instead the Spirit gives him a dream of a Macedonian man calling him to go over to Greece. The Spirit is the one not only initiating, but directing the mission of the church. Eventually the Spirit drives Paul to Jerusalem, even though he knows that he's going to suffer, he's going to be arrested and he's going to be tried and he'll eventually get uh, appealed to Caesar and get himself to Rome. All of that is directed by the Spirit. As we heard in our, one of our readings this morning, the Spirit blows where he wills. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. So is the Spirit himself. The Spirit often outpaces the apostles in the book of Acts. 
when we hear Paul exhorting us to keep in step with the Spirit, we think maybe a leisurely walk, you know, like a small child trying to keep up with a parent. It's more like a sprint. The Spirit is sprinting ahead, falling on Samaritans before the disciples are quite ready to welcome Samaritans. The Spirit falls on Gentiles before anybody's ready for a Gentile mission. The apostles have to keep up with the work of the Spirit. Just as much as Jesus is the hero of the Gospel story and the book of Acts, the Spirit is just as much the hero of the story. And this event at Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out on the church, is what forms the church's mission. It's what tells us what the church in fact is. What kind of community is the church? It's a Pentecostal community. That should be our answer. It's a community filled with the Spirit. A community that still is sharing the Spirit and living by the Spirit that was given at Pentecost. But what does that mean? What kind of community is this that the Spirit forms? What kind of mission does the Spirit give to the church? We can pick that up from various details that are given us here in Acts 2. The Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost. We think of the day of Pentecost as a celebration of the gift of the Spirit, the New Covenant Pentecost. But Pentecost was a Jewish festival. It was one of the three great Jewish festivals, along with Passover and the Feast of Booths. Pentecost was celebrated by Jews for centuries, from the time of Moses until now. Jews still celebrate Pentecost today, a different Pentecost than we celebrate. But in the Old Testament, Pentecost was a harvest harvest festival. It was the beginning of the harvest. It was the barley harvest festival. And at this fulfilled Pentecost, at this renewed Pentecost, the Lord is beginning another kind of harvest, not bringing in the sheaves of barley, but instead bringing in the Gentiles. The nations are being harvested. Pentecost celebrated the gift of the law. It was the celebration of Sinai. Passover celebrated the deliverance from Israel. The Feast of Booths celebrated the time of Israel in the wilderness. And the Feast of Pentecost celebrated Israel's arrival at Sinai in the third month after Passover, when they gathered at Sinai and the Lord spoke the law and then wrote the law and dictated the law to Moses, which Moses then delivered to the people. Pentecost is a celebration of the gift of the law. When the Lord himself wrote with a finger on tablets of stone, but at this Pentecost, at this fulfilled Pentecost, we have the Lord writing differently. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the Lord no longer writes with his finger on tablets of stone, but he writes by his spirit on tablets of the human heart. And that begins at Pentecost. This is a fulfilled Pentecost. And the church is the people that is the, that is the result of this fulfilled Pentecost. The people that is harvesting the nations. The people on whom the spirit has written the law of God. That's who we are. We're the Pentecostal people. On this day of Pentecost, the fulfilled Pentecost, there's a sound like a rushing, violent wind that fills the whole house where they're sitting. That rushing, violent wind takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. The first time we see the Spirit, the Spirit is hovering over the waters of the original creation, blowing over the waters, hovering over the waters in order to form and enliven 
the creation to make it a, a beautiful and glorious world, the world that we know. It's by word and spirit that the Lord makes the world that we know. And the spirit comes first as a rushing mighty wind. When the spirit is poured out at Pentecost, it's the creator spirit who is hovering over the disciples to form the formless void of sinful humanity and the formless void of, an, of a ruined world into a new creation. That's why the Spirit comes. The Spirit doesn't just come to give us personal communion with God. The Spirit comes to renew the cosmos because He comes as a rushing mighty wind. And He comes as a rushing mighty wind that fills the house where they're sitting. We're put in mind in various events in the Old Testament when things filled the house. Put in mind of Sinai again, where Moses built the tabernacle at the foot of the mountain, and then eventually the glory cloud, the, cl the storm cloud that's up on top of the mountain, came down from the mountain and rushed into the most holy place of the tabernacle, and the Lord was enthroned in the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And they knew the Lord was in residence because the glory was there, seated above the cherubim in the most holy place of the tabernacle. And now that same glory spirit comes down and fills the house where the disciples are sitting and doesn't so much fill the room where they're sitting as fills them as the new temple of God. God is making a new kind of house for himself. Not a house of fabric like the tabernacle, not a house of stone like the temple or the second temple. He's making a real house, a living house made of living stones. And at Pentecost, he fills that house with the glory of his spirit. I mean, the disciples are gathering, what, half a mile from the temple. Herod's temple in Jerusalem is just standing around the corner in Jerusalem. But that's not where the spirit goes. The Spirit doesn't fill that old house. That old house is fraying and dying. It will soon be eliminated. But He fills a new house, a house made of people. That's who we are. We're the temple of the living God. We're the Pentecostal people, the new temple of God. There's something new here. You remember back in Exodus and Kings, when the glory of the Lord filled the house, everybody had to get out. Moses had spent 40 days on the mountain inside the cloud. But when the cloud comes and fills the tabernacle, not even Moses can go into the tabernacle. None of the, none of the priests can go in there for a time because the glory of the Lord is so intense and they're not ready to stand in the presence of the glory. But notice what happens at Pentecost. A rushing mighty wind, the wind of the Spirit, the wind of the glory of God, fills the whole house where they're sitting, and everyone sits still. Nobody leaves. Moses couldn't stay. Solomon couldn't be in the house with the glory. The priests couldn't be in the house with the glory. Peter and James and John and the others who are the 120 who are in the upper room, they can stay. Because Jesus is creating a people who can stand face to face with the glory of the Lord and be transformed into the image of that glory from glory to glory. 
we can stay in the presence of the glory. We can share in the glory of the Spirit. That's the kind of people we are. That's the Pentecostal people that we are. And there's another innovation. When, when uh, Yahweh took his throne above the cherubim in the holy place, he sent fire out from before him. And it shot out through the tabernacle, later on through the temple. Fire shot out from before the Lord out to the altar and lit the altar on fire where the priest had prepared a bunch of sacrificial pieces uh, for the Lord to consume in his fire. Well, there's fire here too. It's not on an altar. It's not dead animals who are burning. We've got a living temple. We've got living altars who are burning as living sacrifices with tongues of fire on their heads. The Lord Jesus has gone to his throne in heaven. He sent fire down onto earth to light his altar and we're it. We're the altar. Filled with the fire of the Spirit. Burning with the fire of the Spirit. Offering our lives as living sacrifices in the Spirit. That's the Pentecostal people that we are. And of course, the disciples speak in tongues. The great language miracle of Pentecost. Which is a means for spreading the gospel, but it's also much more. Luke has written Acts 2 so that he's echoing the order, actually reversing the order of a section of the book of Genesis. In Genesis 10, we have a list of 70 nations of the earth, the descendants from the sons of Noah. In Genesis 11, which is the next chapter, we have the scattering of the nations at the Tower of Babel, the confusion of tongues at the Tower of Babel, table of nations, confusion of tongues. Acts 2 reverses that. First we have not a confusion of tongues, but a miracle of tongues that dispels confusion. Instead of making it impossible for people to communicate, the Spirit makes it possible for people to communicate. So that everyone, no matter what they're, where they're from, hears the great, new, great deeds of God in their own language. There's a reversal of Babel. And then we get another table of nations, a short table of nations in verses 9 through 11. Luke inverts the order of Genesis 10 and 11 because he's trying to show us that Pentecost is inverting the event of Babel. Languages still exist. We speak different languages. People across the world don't, can't communicate with each other. And yet those differences no longer scatter us, but in the spirit they're uniting us so that the church becomes and is called to be the true united nations in the earth. We're the, we're the place where people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people gather, where every language is spoken. And that's, of course, that is not some kind of pipe dream. It's already true. How many hundreds of languages are being used this very hour, this very day across the world to praise Jesus Christ? Because the global church is a Pentecostal church, a church that shares in the gift of the Spirit, a church that is harmonized by the Spirit into one body in the Son of God, in Christ. The Spirit is everywhere doing everything. 
in the gospel and in the book of Acts. But there are some Christians and some traditions, let's say perhaps some reformed churches and reformed traditions that are a little bit hesitant to be too enthusiastic about the Spirit. We don't want to be mistaken for charismatics. And the charismatics and the Pentecostals have gotten a corner on talk about the Spirit. It's the Spirit this and the Spirit that, always the Spirit, and we kind of recoil and back off and and we can fall into a kind of naturalism where we forget that the Spirit of God is in fact still operating in the church, still as alive and still as active as he ever was. I don't think we should recoil. I think we should do the opposite. I don't do improvisational theater, but I'm told that when you do improvisational theater, there's one great do not and one great positive command. The do not, do not do this, is block. If you're doing an improv, improv sketch and somebody does something, you don't stop them and do something else. That's what amateurs do. You know, what kids do when they're doing improvisational acting. One of the kids wants to make it an adventure story and the other kid wants to make it a love story. So they get, you know, just caught back and forth and one is trying to make it a love story and one's trying to make it an adventure story. Yeah, that's not what you do. What you do is over-accept. You over-accept. When your partner in your acting troupe does something, you don't just receive it, but you improve upon it. If they make it a love story, then you make it the best love story that you can possibly make. You, you extend their, uh, their initiative rather than block it. I suggest we over-accept Charismatics and Pentecostals. We try to outdo them in our talk about the Spirit. Let's talk about the Spirit more, attribute more to the Spirit than the Pentecostals and Charismatics are apt to. Let me give a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. There are some Pentecostal and Charismatic churches that preach a prosperity gospel. If you are being obedient to the Lord Jesus, everything will go well. You'll prosper financially, uh, your business will do well, you have a nice house, you have a beautiful wife, beautiful kids, your kids will be way, way above average. Everything goes well if you're walking in step with the Spirit, and if things are not going well, well then maybe you should examine yourself and ask yourself whether you really have the Spirit. Maybe you're not really walking in obedience. But that's not the picture we get from the book of Acts. The picture we get from the book of Acts is that every success of the church is a gift of the Spirit, and every failure or apparent failure of the church is also a gift of the Spirit. The Spirit opens doors, but if there's a closed door, that's also a work of the Spirit. If Paul escapes, from being beaten, beaten, he escapes by the power of the Spirit. If Paul doesn't escape, and he gets beaten and left for dead, as he does several times, that also is a work of the Spirit, and the Spirit is still working through him, even in that apparent failure. 
Paul wrote an entire letter about this. 2 Corinthians is all about suffering in the Spirit. Other Christians look at Paul and say, what kind of apostle is this? He gets beat up all the time. People don't want to listen to him. He gets, he gets ridden out of town on a rail. More often than not, he gets, he gets uh, chased out of his cities where he's trying to minister. This is, he's, filled with, he's filled with scars. What kind of apostle is this? That's not the kind of successful ministry we're looking for. And Paul just flips it around and says, I'm an apostle of a crucified Savior. And my scars are the brand marks of Jesus Christ. I share in my flesh the brand marks of Jesus Christ. And am I, if I'm suffering and dying, I'm suffering and dying in the Spirit so that you, Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and whoever else, can live. It's not that just the successes that come from the Spirit. It's all of the apparent failures are also opportunities for the Spirit to work, and sometimes even more so. Because when we're weak, then He's strong. And He shows His strength and power in the midst of our weakness more dramatically than when we're, than we're, when we're strong. Another example. Pentecostals and Charismatics tend to be attracted to display, to spectacle. And you can see why. I mean, they pick up on the book, uh, on, the, on the event of Pentecost. Pentecost is a spectacular event. Lots of noise. A miracle of tongues. People prophesying. 3,000 people baptized in one day. You can see why Pentecostals get attracted to spectacle. We'd like to see that. Wouldn't you like to be a part of something like that? Of course that's attractive. You've got to keep reading. What's happening at the end of the day of Pentecost? When the rushing mighty wind is no longer being heard and when everyone has stopped speaking in tongues and everyone's been duly baptized, what's going on? The disciples who have been newly baptized have devoted, are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're breaking bread together. They're praying. They're sharing their goods. And the people that have come from every nation under heaven are dining together at a common table. And that, too, is a miracle of the Spirit. All of that. It's not just the apparently extraordinary events in the Christian and Christian history that are works of the Spirit. It's all of the apparently ordinary things which are also extraordinary. If you have a community of people that love one another and care for one another and are willing to sacrifice to share their goods with one another, you've got the Spirit. The Spirit is working. You may not have tongues. You may not have anybody popping up and prophesying. But if you've got a community that looks like the end of Acts 2, you've got a Pentecostal church. You've got a church that's full of the Spirit. The Nicene Creed tells us that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. The Spirit who spoke by the prophets. 
the Nicene Creed is emphasizing that not only the Father and not only the Son, but also the Spirit is eternal God. We should let that sink in. Acts 2 is about God coming to be with us and to dwell with us and to live with us and among us and in us. God, the God who created everything, the spirit who hovered over the waters, that spirit dwells in you. The spirit who equipped the judges for battle, that spirit dwells in you. The spirit by whose power Jesus rose from the dead, that spirit dwells in you. God dwells in you. The life by which God is the living God is your life. The love by which God is the God of love has been poured out in you and lives in you. Every time you look in the mirror, you are looking at a temple of the Holy Spirit, a dwelling place of eternal God. Every time you look at your husband or your wife or your children or your parents or your brothers or your sisters, you're looking at a temple of the living God. We should be in awe of each other, <laughs> in awe of ourselves. None of us live, is living a merely human life anymore. <laughs> None of us. Every single one of you is living a divine human life. A life lived in the flesh by the Spirit of God. Every last one of you is an example of a divine human living a divine human life. No matter how little it looks, <laughs> no matter how pathetic it might seem at times, your life is a divine human life. Pentecost is the fulfillment of human destiny. Irenaeus, the early church father, said that God became man so that man might become God. And he was not saying that the difference between God and creatures was going to be erased. He meant that God became man, the Son became incarnate to raise us up to be more like God, to live divine life, to share in God's own life as creatures. And that's what Pentecost is all about. Pentecost means that you have been brought to full humanity in Christ, full humanity in the Spirit. Because to live a fully human life is to live something more than a human life. It's to live a divine human life, which is the life we're living. Each one of you individually, all of us together. This community of believers is a Pentecostal community living a divine human life together here in Huntsville. That's the gift of Pentecost. That's what it means to be a Pentecostal people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit. 
we thank you that you have poured out yourself on us. We thank you that we live not just in the flesh, but we live in the flesh, in this decaying, weak flesh. We live by the Spirit. And the life we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for us. We pray that you would give us uh, a proper wonder at this great blessing, that we can live divine human lives filled with the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, sharing the Spirit together, and so reaching our fulfillment as human beings in your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. <laughs>